Views expressed in the following episode are those of the subjects interviewed or individual presenters from the case. They do not necessarily reflect the views of Reach Freaks LLC, the Invisible Choir podcast, or cast media. Reach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. She had made a decision, and and she says it later. If I have to go to jail for the rest of my life, it was worth it. The adverse effects of untreated mental illness are something we examine quite often on this show. The importance of doing so is rooted in creating awareness for not only our listeners, but ourselves as creators of this podcast. We believe it is important to bring these cases to light, and sweep them back out from under the rug in which they've so often been brushed beneath, while attempting to pinpoint where things may have gone wrong. An act of preservation, if you will. But let's face it, these matters are by no means easy to speak of. Not for us, and especially not for those dealing with these crises in their personal lives. If you or a loved one has ever suffered from mental illness or even a depressed or declined mental state, you know better than most that for some reason there's still a negative societal stigma attached to the discussion surrounding this subject. You should also know that if you are one of these people, you are not alone. There are more people suffering in silence than you might think. And while that conversation has never been easy, it has certainly evolved. Still, there's no denying that some would rather turn a blind eye than face such a complex issue head-on. But what happens when an individual is too far gone to help themselves? yet they know something's wrong. At what point do the systems set in place to protect us from ourselves and others step in? And what if the individual tried, but never received the assistance they so desperately needed? What do you do then? Who do you blame when our public resources fail? This is the story of one woman who was born into a cycle of violence, abuse, and addiction. When the few people who did try to help 40-year-old Jody Herring The tragic irony was that those individuals would then be listed at the top of her handwritten hit list, becoming victims in one of Vermont's most historically heinous crimes. Barrie is a northeast city in central Vermont that doesn't really feel like a city at all. Resting 30 miles from Stowe, a breathtaking and affluent ski resort, Barrie is located in the Green Mountains and is known for its rural beauty, tranquility, and picturesque views. It's been described as a mill town that still works. Small metal shops, blacksmiths, and independent artisans alike still thrive there. Needless to say, it's not a place known for crime. It's quiet. If you grew up here, you most likely wouldn't have much incentive to leave, unless, of course, you hate snow. That's not to say that Barrie isn't without its problems, however. While it is an area anyone would be happy to visit, just like anywhere else, there's poverty hidden on the outskirts of the trendy downtown coffee shops and restaurants. A family that unfortunately has endured this agrarian form of hardship for generations were the Herrings. Just south of Montpelier off Route 12 was a thousand-acre farm, inaptly named Happy Valley Farm. But there was nothing happy about this place. 
In fact, it was quite horrifying. The farm was owned by a man named Frank Herring. He had 16 children, and Frank abused each and every one of them. He himself had been abused as a child, and so the cycle carried on like a vicious family tradition. He would beat the children, make them work long hours on the farm, and often threaten them at gunpoint. The kids would often be locked in a closet if they misbehaved. Some of them were allegedly raped as well. One of the 16 children was David Herring. David would grow up and have children of his own. One of his girls was named Jody. Jody was born into yet another generation of violence, witnessing constant physical and emotional mistreatment, all orchestrated by her own father. Though Jody was spared herself as an infant, she would witness the lashings her brother Dwayne took on a regular basis. In 1979, when Jody was only five years old, her father David committed suicide on the family farm. He was just 31, and Jody was present at the time of her father's death. She was never the same after that, and Jody soon began having seizures. It's unclear if Jody ever did undergo any type of thorough medical treatment during this period of her life, or mental health, or otherwise. There's still much controversy surrounding the death of David Harry. See, David was left-handed and the gun used to take his life was found in his right hand. The family remains suspicious to this day, believing his death actually to have been a homicide. David had also been sleeping with his firearm and became increasingly paranoid that someone might be out to get him in the days leading up to his demise. Regardless, the coroner ultimately ruled his tragic death a suicide, the result of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. The mortician who prepared David's body originally thought the man had been at war because of how severe the scars were on his skin. He quickly learned, however, that the marks were the result of years of abuse from Jody's grandfather, Frank. Jody wouldn't be shown much mercy for long. After her father died, Janella, her father's first wife, remarried a man who was also extremely abusive. The sequence of violence continued. This is about the time when Jody became the recipient of the physical beatings herself. It went on like this for years, until Jody and Dwayne were barely old enough to leave. Before they were even teenagers, the two left the home together and went out on their own. They lived in a car for some time after that. They had no money, no guidance, and had been brought into an environment so cruel, yet so normal to them. It was all they'd ever known. The Herring children had no way of realizing just how negatively their upbringing might shape the rest of their lives, until years later, that is. Fast forward to adulthood. Clearly, Jody Herring was never given the appropriate tools to succeed in life. She'd been subjected to a brand of trauma that more than likely resided within her subconscious. She quickly fell into the same behaviors and principles in which she was raised. She had a history of dating abusive men herself, men who she knew were bad for her, men she always went running back to. She ended up having three children all by different fathers, and she began a life of drugs and alcohol very early on. She'd often move back and forth from Vermont to Massachusetts, working as an exotic dancer at the strip club Centerfolds in Boston. Jody had a fairly lengthy criminal record stemming back to the 1990s, all misdemeanors for the most part, 
but as time went on, things only got worse. In 2001, she robbed a jewelry store and was charged with larceny. In January of 2003, she was charged with domestic assault. Later that same year, she was arrested during a routine traffic stop, at which time the officer located 42 bags of heroin and drug paraphernalia on her person. This incident was obviously more severe, and so she was now facing felony charges. There were a couple of DUIs in the mix as well. Jody Herring failed to show up for court 10 out of the 11 convictions on her record. Eventually, after being summoned, Herring signed a plea agreement reducing the felony drug charge to a misdemeanor, thus avoiding jail time altogether. The judge ultimately showed great leniency and Jody was sentenced to 6 to 12 months of probation. Her life was falling apart, or perhaps was never put together in the first place. She'd been given several chances by the state, avoiding jail sentences time and time again. The domestic assault charge barred Jody from purchasing or owning firearms, something that she was not particularly pleased with. On one occasion, Jody had driven under the influence, crashed into her boss's car, and was fired from her job all in the same day. Not to mention she had a suspended driver's license at the time. Inevitably, two or three of Jody's young children would be taken away by DCF. She was no longer granted custody as the courts deemed her unfit to care for the youngest children. The only glimmer of hope in Jody's life at the time was the one daughter she still had custody of. While this may have seemed like one positive left amongst a lifetime of disappointment and failures, Jody's relatives were keeping a close eye on her and her daughter. Jody wasn't fit to have any child in her possession, period, and they all knew that. Concerned for the well-being of the girl, Jody's Aunt Julie and her cousins Regina and Rhonda were the three to step up and ensure the child was safe under Jody's intoxicated supervision. But Jody wanted to be left alone and didn't appreciate her extended family's newfound interest in the only thing she had left in this world, her daughter. Jody's world continued to deteriorate over the years. She was addicted to hard drugs and alcohol. She was also unable to hold down a job and was destitute. She knew something needed to change, but always found herself back at square one. She kept running through a perpetual hamster wheel of heroin binges and boozing that looped over and over again, day after day. Finally, in 2010, she decided to seek professional help, not once, but several times. In November of that year, her doctor, Kevin D. Crowley of Green Mountain Family Practice stated the following in regards to Jody's current state at the time. Despite not being a psychiatrist, yet based on Herring's numerous office visits, it is unlikely she would be able to hold a job for any length of time because of her emotional state and her resultant inability to stay focused. Dr. Crowley expressed his belief that Jody's underlying issue was bipolar disorder, but again, he wasn't a psychiatrist. He offered his medical opinion to John Worth, a staff attorney for the Office of Child Support at the time. This was certainly not a good thing in Jody's eyes, as she'd been desperately trying to get her other two children back, and was afraid the state would soon take away her third. At this point, it's unclear if any further action was ever taken, 
in regards to a proper and official psychiatric evaluation. However, Jody did soon begin receiving Social Security disability benefits around this period. Then one day in December of 2014, Jody arrived at her daughter's middle school. An interaction took place between Herring and Principal Carol Amos, where Jody expressed that she and her daughter were currently homeless. Jody continued on by claiming that she believed her daughter was being molested by someone in the family. Principal Amos certainly saw all of these comments as red flags, becoming extremely worried for the safety of the then nine-year-old girl. During the visit, Principal Amos also noticed several visible bruises on Jody's body. When questioned about the marks, Jody explained that they were from an ex-boyfriend. Despite the concerning revelations about her daughter and the clear signs of abuse present on Jody, the principal later testified that she did not contact the Department of Children and Families, explaining that no further action was taken at the time. Not long after, Jody began dating a man by the name of Henry Premont. Things seemed to be working out for the most part, and while Jody did finally end up getting an apartment of her own, she found herself more and more at Premont's residence. By all accounts, Jody did love her daughter, but she was an addict. She would leave the girl with relatives for extended periods of time on more than a few occasions, placing the responsibility of her care to her Aunt Julie or her cousins Regina and Rhonda. The three family members lived together in a big farmhouse in Berlin, a town roughly six miles from Barrie. Jody clearly needed the help, and thankfully new beau Henry Premont seemed to care for both her and her daughter very much so. So when Henry was able, he supported the girl the best way he knew how. And it's not like Jody didn't have other people in her corner. She was loved, but couldn't seem to get out of her own way. Henry was an avid outdoorsman and sports shooter. He'd take Jody to the gun range where they'd both practice their aim using Premont's 270 caliber bolt-action Remington hunting rifle. He was impressed with Jody's shooting ability, as she was quite accurate for a beginner. But even as the two's relationship appeared to be going well, Jody was still fighting some serious demons in regards to her substance abuse. By this time, she'd been prescribed Ritalin and Klonopin, the first being a stimulant commonly used to treat ADHD, and the other, a highly addictive benzodiazepine, used to treat anxiety. Abuse of colonopins in particular can cause paranoia as well as suicidal ideations. Jody was still battling her illicit drug use and her alcohol dependency on top of this. How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill, if it's possible. How are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Middle school principal Amos had been paying closer attention to the nine-year-old ever since that strange day she spoke to Jody at the school. But not even a month later, in January of 2015, Amos knew she needed to intervene. She called DCF to report Jody, 
believing the child may be in danger. The school then reported Jody to DCF a second time after her daughter had missed some 15 days of school. By state law, school staff were required to report when a child misses that many days, so the referral was triggered in that case automatically. As the months progressed, Jody and Henry's relationship was now on the rocks. They fought regularly about her drug use and inability to even attempt to find work. She bounced back and forth between her apartment and Premont's, and it was evident this was no way for a nine-year-old child to grow up. If you thought things couldn't possibly get any worse in this story, there's always a new floor or rock bottom we as humans can reach if we allow ourselves to. Stir in a cocktail of daily drugs and alcohol, and, well, that can only be a recipe for disaster. Or, as Jody Herring would later describe it, an Armageddon. Eventually, Henry Premont reached his breaking point. He decided he could no longer come home from work to find Jody passed out on his couch, surrounded by empty beer bottles and drug paraphernalia throughout the home. And so, he kicked her out. Jody and her daughter packed their things and went back to their apartment. She then fell into a deep depression after the breakup, becoming even more despondent. Eventually, she stopped answering phone calls from her relatives, including her brother Dwayne, who she was closest with. Julie, Rhonda, and Regina decided together that someone needed to do a welfare check on the two after no one had heard from Jody in quite some time. On May 24, 2015, the 911 phone call was made, and the three told the operator they believed Jody was suicidal and that they were worried about her and her daughter. When EMS arrived, no one answered the door, so they inevitably had to break down the entryway of Herring's apartment. Inside, they found a Jody lying on her bed, heavily under the influence of narcotics. Candles were lit, pill bottles were sprawled among the comforter, and photographs of all three of her children were laid out. Her daughter was also in the home, left unattended. There was enough indication for paramedics to believe that Jody may have intended to harm herself, so she was taken to the Central Vermont Medical Center in Berlin. DCF was left with no choice but to take Jody's third and final child away from the residence. A screener from the Washington County Mental Health Services was brought to the hospital to evaluate Jody Herring's mental state. It was soon concluded that she was, in fact, a potential threat to herself and or others. She was then evaluated by psychiatrist Jesse Ritvo. He too assessed that Herring should be held involuntarily and enrolled into a 90-day program for further treatment. She was then moved to Rutland Regional Medical Center, where she would be placed on a state-mandated three-day involuntary hold. In order to proceed with the full 90-day stay, however, authorities must seek a judge's formal permission at a scheduled hearing, per Vermont law. But no hearing was ever held, and after only three days, Jody was free to leave on her own accord on May 29, 2015. When Rutland Regional Medical Spokesperson Peg Bolgiani was asked to comment on why this matter was not followed up with and just how Herring could have been allowed to leave, she responded by stating, quote, I cannot comment upon the care of an individual patient. It was after Jody's release from the hospital that her depression quickly turned to pure rage. Her only concern was finding out who took her child away and how to get her back. This was ultimately the last straw. 
Jody perceived this act by the DCF more personally than ever before, and her mind was already made up that someone was going to pay. Forty-eight-year-old Lara Sobel was a veteran social worker at the City of Barrie DCF office. Ever since earning her master's in social work from the University of Vermont in 2002, Lara had been dedicating her life to helping families, particularly mothers who had lost their way and subsequently lost custody of their children. After Jody Herring's nine-year-old was taken away from her, Lara was assigned to the case. Like all mothers she met with, Lara was kind. She wanted to help people and genuinely sympathized with the tough times women like Jody faced. It's why she got into civil service in the first place. Lara spoke at length with Jody about a plan to get her back on her feet. The ideal situation for everyone in these scenarios, including for the state, is to get these children back into the arms of their mothers and immediate families. With that being said, it's the job of individuals like Lara to make sure mothers like Jody are suitable to care for their kids before doing so. If their clients do not show progress, well, legally, their hands are tied. But Jody didn't see Lara as someone who wanted to help her. She viewed her as the enemy, a woman who was directly responsible for keeping her daughter from her. In the months that passed, and as Jody remained inept from finding work, she was unable to stay clean from drugs. Her anger only grew. She refused to listen to Lara, and rather than taking accountability for her current situation, she began blaming everyone else around her. It was never Jody's fault in her eyes. The world was against her, she thought. Family members had known Jody had a difficult life for as long as anyone could remember, but no one knew what was truly going on inside of her head. She attempted to purchase a handgun at R&L Archery in Barrie, but was denied after filling out the mandatory background check paperwork. Jody then tried a second firearms retailer with the same outcome. She, of course, was attempting to make these purchases in secrecy, and no one knew why or what she was intending on using them for. She was speaking more erratically now, specifically to her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Henry Premont, and to her brother, Dwayne. She would talk about, quote, Armageddon, and wanting to see someone's, quote, brain splattered on the wall. It was around this time that she also became obsessed with rehashing her father's manner of death, almost out of nowhere, a tragedy that happened over 30 years before. Jody began claiming that she was going to prove that her father, David, was actually murdered. Dwayne was taken aback by his sister's statements, though he knew she had reason to be angry. In all the years, however, he had never once heard her speak of violence in this way. Surely she was just frustrated at her current situation and needed some time to cool off. But there would be no cooler heads prevailing here, and just a few days later, everyone would realize the impending doom Jody spoke of was no metaphor at all. The morning of August 7, 2015, Jody Herring called the home of her Aunt Julie and cousins Regina and Rhonda, but no one answered. She left the following message on the machine. You might want to stop calling DCF or I'm going to come there and shoot your brains out. Tiffany Herring Flint, Jody's younger cousin, was present at the home when the voicemail was left. Later that day, Jody also tried to reach her brother, the one person she seemingly still had a good relationship with, but he didn't answer either. She called his phone several times, but Dwayne was at work, operating heavy machinery at a job site 
so he never even heard the phone ring. Jody left him multiple voicemails, one of which stated, quote, If you think anything of your sister, you'll get a hold of me now or ASAP. After Dwayne failed to pick up, she called again just minutes later at 3 p.m. Watch the news. You'll wish you got a hold of me earlier. Later that day, just before 5 p.m., at the Department of Children and Family Offices in Barrie, Vermont, a woman is seen screaming inside of a 2011 silver Honda Accord, sitting in the parking lot. Less than 10 minutes later, social worker Lara Sobel is seen exiting the office building as she prepares to leave work for the day. Witnesses notice Lara smiling and talking on the phone. It would later be determined that she was speaking with her 11-year-old daughter at the time. Just then, a slender woman with blonde hair exited the Honda Accord. She was holding a long black rifle. The woman then proceeds without haste toward the DCF worker. She then shoulders the rifle while still moving in a forward motion and yells something to the effect of, You know what you've done! You know what you've done! Lara drops the phone, realizing that the woman pointing a gun walking directly towards her is Jody Herring. But before she can make any effort to escape, Jody shoots once, striking her in the chest. Lara falls to the pavement, and as Jody continues to scream, she fires one last shot as she stands over her. Several witnesses courageously approach and physically strip the rifle from Jody at the scene, while others try to keep Lara conscious as EMS is en route. When officers finally arrive, Jody did not resist and was eerily laughing hysterically, stating, quote, Officers tried to comfort the victim as much as possible, but she was gone before EMS could arrive. And 48-year-old Lara Kim Sobel would tragically pass away in the parking lot there at the DCF offices shortly thereafter. All of a sudden we heard like two gunshots. It It was awful. It was people all over, cops and everything. Later that evening, police officially notified the public of the horrifying events that took place earlier that afternoon. The shooting shortly before 5 o'clock here in Barry City, out behind City Place. The victim has been identified as Lara Sobel, a DCF worker here in Washington County. The shooter is in custody at Barry City PD. The shooter is a Jody Herring. The connection that we've been able to find between the victim and the shooter is a result of cases in family court involving DCF and Jody Herring and some child custody issues, child welfare issues. The weapon involved uh, appears to be a hunting rifle, fairly heavy caliber. She was apprehended by people outside and people inside the building that saw what was going on. My understanding was that they tackled her. DCF Commissioner Ken Schatz was next to address the media in regards to the tragic loss of human life that sent shockwaves through this quiet mountain community. This is obviously a heartbreaking tragedy. I think that it's inconceivable that uh, an event like this could happen here. Ms. Sova was an experienced social worker. She'd been uh, providing public service for children and families for more than 14 years. Uh, 
obviously really hard for all of us at DCF. This is a situation right now where we're feeling the loss of one of our own. All of us are committed on a daily basis to doing the best we can to protect children, to serve uh, families in the state of Vermont. And uh, we, we know there, there are tensions, but we, we, we'll, we do and will continue to do the best we can. We appreciate the support that's being given to make sure that appropriate security is in place to make sure that we're all safe. While in her holding cell, Jody Herring is caught on surveillance video speaking aloud to herself. Go pick up three more fucking bodies. She is seen pacing around, laughing and clapping her hands. She seemed to be championing her actions, almost congratulating herself for the murder she had just committed. Jody is then heard on camera saying something to the effect of, Oh no, Jody. Oh no, don't. <laughs> as she laughed sarcastically, presumably mocking her victim. The very next morning, Detective Sergeant Todd Baxter of the Vermont State Police entered her cell to conduct an interview. Before Todd could say much of anything, Jody exclaims aloud, quote, So what about the other three? Baxter was perplexed, but feared for the worst. Before authorities could investigate what was coming out of Jody Herring's mouth, a 911 call came in. Just after 8 o'clock in the morning, a few towns back in Berlin, Jody's cousin Tiffany entered the farmhouse of 73-year-old Julie Falzerano, 48-year-old Regina Herring, and 43-year-old Rhonda Herring at 3168 Airport Road. She called out to her family members, but gained no response. Upon further investigation of the home, Tiffany was met with a scene so grisly she could have never prepared herself for what she ultimately encountered inside. She quickly discovered all three of her loved ones shot dead in their own home. It was clear that what Jody had been bragging about to herself from the time she had been arrested was true, and that police now had four individuals dead as a result. It is our belief that Julianne Fozerano, who was the aunt of the accused murderer, and her cousins, Regina and Rhonda, also had their lives taken from we have detectives out in the field conducting multiple interviews at this time, uh, and we are continuing to pull the evidence together um, to help us paint a picture of the course of events. What that evidence would ultimately show was that before Jody Herring murdered Lara Sobel at the DCF office, she had broken into the home of her then ex-boyfriend Henry Premont while he was at work. There, she would locate his 270 Remington hunting rifle. After leaving many hysterical voicemails, Jody Herring then proceeded to the farmhouse where she would execute all three of her family members, in the very same home that Jody herself once lived in for a time when the three women tried helping her get back onto her feet. Jody blamed her relatives for losing custody of her daughter the day they prompted a welfare check and she was ultimately taken to the hospital. After the triple murder, Jody then took the six-mile drive to Barry, where she would lie in wait for Lara Sobel her next intended target, to walk out the back door of her workplace. Lara's 11-year-old daughter, tragically, was still on the phone listening as her mother was murdered in the parking lot that day.
Julie, Rhonda, and Regina did nothing to Jody Herring other than care for her. They tried to get her help, worried she may take her own life the day they called 911. And for this, Jody decided to take their lives, blaming them for the loss of guardianship over her daughter. Lara Sobel also tried to help Jody, and she too was senselessly murdered as a result. Murdered for simply doing her job, trying to assist Jody get her little girl back. Here is someone Jody could have learned something from. A woman by the name of Naomi Walker. She was once addicted to drugs and alcohol, much like Jody, and lost her children as a result as well. Lara was her caseworker, but Naomi took a much different path than that of quadruple murderer Jody Herring. I've been sober for nine years almost. Um, Is that thanks to Lara? Yes. Because she came, she came into my life telling me that she was there. She wasn't there to pull my family apart. She was there to give me the opportunity to clean up my life. Lara helped Naomi turn her situation around. She gave her the tools she needed to get back on track. Lara Sobel wasn't out to get people as Jody Herring had so brazenly misconstrued. Lara was dedicated to public service, and success stories like Naomi's are what made her work so fulfilling. The word unfair doesn't justly constitute the callous and calculated actions of Jody Herring that day. Lara's two girls, Julia and Alana, will now grow up without their mother, but as indicated by Jody's sickening boasts from behind the walls of her holding cell, it seems as though this was the precise outcome she'd so hoped for. On August 11, 2015, funeral services were held for Lara Sobel in the Grand Ballroom of the Capitol Plaza Hotel in Mount Pelier, Vermont. Hundreds were in attendance to mourn this great loss, including U.S. Vermont State Representative Peter Welch. It was sad. It's just so sad. You know, the focus is on these two beautiful daughters and devoted husband and extended family. And the loss is palpable and the pain that they're enduring is only beginning. That's the reality. During her arraignment, Jody entered a plea of not guilty and was subsequently held without bond. But two years later, in July of 2017, she would change her plea to guilty on three counts of second-degree murder in the deaths of Rhonda Herring, Regina Herring, and Julie Falzerano. She pleaded guilty to one count of first-degree intentional homicide in the death of Lara Kim Sobel. This would now constitute a bench trial, which allowed Jody to effectively avoid a ruling by a jury of her peers. A three-day hearing was scheduled to take place later that November. In retrospect, the very day this quadruple murder actually occurred would have been Jody Herring's 68th day of a 90-day involuntary hold had she actually been required to remain hospitalized when she was initially evaluated, roughly two months before the massacre. According to her defense, this was a major error made by the very systems set in place to not only treat those deemed to be a threat to themselves, but to those who represent a threat to the general public as well. Jody Herring's lawyer, David Slay, would lean heavily on this argument, hoping to earn his client a lesser sentence than the one that currently lay before her. She worked as a stripper, she was in abusive relationships, and she suffered the loss of all her daughters. Jody found herself born into a family of extreme dysfunction. Jody lost her father to murder. She lost her three daughters, not in the way that the Sobels and Herrings 
have lost their relatives. But Jody had each of them taken away. Enormous amount of pain, enormous amount of trauma. Your Honor, we're asking for a sentence that would provide for some reasonable chance at release on parole. Slay contested that had Jody still been undergoing psychiatric care, as was recommended by professionals who evaluated her, Regina, Julie, Rhonda, and Lara may very well all still be alive today. Herring's lawyer had this to say in her defense. These four tragic and unnecessary deaths are the result of one of the biggest failures of the mental health system in the state of Vermont's history. Jody knows that she should have been held involuntarily. She now has to live with the fact that she perpetrated the same horror and grief and loss that she endured. Jody's brother Dwayne approached the stand on his sister's behalf, claiming that the custody battle over her children caused her to lose control. He expressed great sorrow, blaming himself for not answering her phone call that day. She was losing it. Messed her up. I didn't hear my phone ring. If I'd answered my phone, we wouldn't be here today. Assistant Attorney General Matt Levine focused on the sheer brutality and premeditation of these crimes. Given the horrific facts of the case, he expressed his strong belief that Herring should never be granted eligibility for parole. Upon her arrest, authorities located additional 270 caliber rounds found on Herring's person attached to her belt. Live and spent rounds for the weapon were also found in the silver Honda at the crime scene. In addition, more ammunition was found at her residence in Southbury, Vermont. Police also found a hit list containing names of people Herring intended to kill that day. Authorities also located a Walmart receipt dated June 2nd, 2015 for $20.08, revealing the purchase of the very same ammunition that was used in the murders. This would have meant Jody purchased the ammunition just days after being released from the hospital in May and roughly two months before the devastating events that took place that August. After the attacks, Jody was evaluated by several mental health professionals. No bipolar diagnosis was ever confirmed or presented in court as a result. Psychiatrist Dr. Renee Sorrentino was called on by the defense to testify. She provided her professional diagnosis of Jody Herring's mental health state at the time she gunned down four innocent people. Her active symptoms of anxiety, as well as her active symptoms of substance use, impaired Ms. Herring's perception on the day of the incident offenses. The state responded with witness after witness of their own, including family members of Jody Herring, who spoke of her temper and language of wanting to commit murder. Tiffany Herring, who heard Jody's message left on the answering machine, and who ultimately found the three bodies of her loved ones a day later, spoke on the stand. When asked about details of how she discovered the bodies, Tiffany stated, quote, Both doors were wide open, and I walked into the living room, and that's where I saw my mom dead. Ex-boyfriend Henry Premont only reaffirmed the idea of premeditation exhibited by Herring leading up to the murders. Shooting people in the head and watching their brain matter splatter. When I heard about it, I went upstairs and and, um, checked on if my rifle was there and it was missing. Jacob Graves, a witness to the entire brutal slaying of Lara Sobel, spoke as well, describing the terror he witnessed in the parking lot that day. Saw that the defendant had a long black gun and um, she started to raise it 
towards Laura. The state continued by focusing on not only the lack of remorse, but of the sense of pride and accomplishment displayed by Jody Herring in her holding cell immediately following her arrest. Four! Four fucking people dead! What do you think of that, motherfucker? And there's going to be a lot more. Jody is seen holding up four fingers to the camera in the video. Boo fucking who? I think it's fucking hilarious. Hilarious. That bitch ain't going to be tormenting anyone anymore, is she? You're not going to see your mother again? Well, she ain't going to be seeing a few people neither. <laughs> the prosecution continued reading the transcript verbatim, reciting everything Jody Herring said after taking Lara Somel's life. Jody, in a fairly casual attitude, well, what about the other fucking three? You find them yet? When he pursued that, do you want to talk about that? Her comment was, well, the way I look at it, they deserved it too. In a comment that was clearly from the context directed at Lara Sobel, she says, beg for your fucking life. You're on my fucking turf now, bitch. She wasn't laughing then. So you better watch your fucking selves, you stupid motherfuckers, and you go get those other fucking worthless fucking people too. And I'm so fucking happy because they're not going to fucking ever laugh or fucking threaten me ever again. The victim impact statements read aloud only reinforced the immense and everlasting pain that Jody Herring had caused. I was 19 years old when you took my family away from me. I was still young and had time with my family. You took away my time. I no longer consider you my family. My Aunt Regina, who I consider like a mother, my Aunt Rhonda and my Grandma Jules didn't deserve what happened to them. Our family holidays will never be the same if they happen at all due to your thoughtless actions. Family is the most important thing to us, and with a pull of a trigger, you ended it. I don't forgive you, I don't want to forgive you, and I'll never forgive what you've done. After today, I don't want to see you again. Two years after his wife was taken from him, Lara Sobel's husband, Timothy, took to the podium. With his head down and in a distraughtly low tone, he expressed a profound sense of grief that felt as if it hadn't subsided one bit since the very day his wife had been murdered. What is lost? My daughters, they were so young, they had a home place filled with great caring, warmth, and unconditional love. It was illuminated with the brightness of Lara, of Mommy. Lara planted the seeds of my girl's dreams. When my youngest daughter was only a tender 11 years old, she called her Mommy. Mommy, when are you going to be home? Having spoken her last words to her mother, her answer was the noise of Mommy being shot down, not once, but twice. Only chaotic sounds filled Lara's baby's ears, noise without an answer. What bitter words can convey the ripples throughout my girl's futures? I beg someone to understand how our family struggles every two weeks with Dada, I want mommy back. Dada, please bring mommy home. We tread with ever heavier steps in a morass of squelched feelings. Our deep and abiding sadness and loss are wrapped about us as a blanket. Fear of the unknown, of the future. All this has come unbidden. They come to ravage our home, our family, 
our hopes. The last to speak on behalf of the victims was Lara's father, Alex Sobel. Who better to tell the court the kind of person Lara was, and as he so eloquently puts it, very much still is. Your Honor, I am neither qualified nor am I inclined to speak to you today of evidence or of legal doctrine. From a father's perspective, however, I am eminently qualified to speak to you today about people, the human equation, the matter of what this monstrous crime did to me, did to my family, did to my friends, and more importantly, did to all decent, valued people everywhere. In order to appreciate the enormity of this loss and its impact, it is essential to know who my daughter was, and in a great sense, still is. Lara was one of those beautiful people that made the world brighter because she was here. In her early years after college, she worked with the homeless in Washington, D.C. She taught elementary school. Lara spent the last 14 years of her life working with the Vermont DCF as an advocate for Vermont's most vulnerable children. While there, she often continued to work with the parents of these children that were removed from their homes for abuse and neglect. She was often heard saying, work with me, get clean, get a job, get a place to live, and I will help you get your child back. Lara never gave up on anyone. Your Honor, my words here today, any words, fall short and are inadequate to the task. The loss of a child is far more than anyone is equipped to handle. To have that child so callously murdered, the grief becomes unimaginably compounded. Words alone could never adequately describe that deepest and endless level of a parent's despair, a level where no human being should ever be asked to reside. My daughter is constantly in my thoughts. Morning, noon, and night, every day. I miss her dearly and still cannot understand the how and the why. I doubt if I ever will. This is my life sentence, and there is no possibility of parole for me. The first glimpse of emotion other than anger demonstrated by Jody Herring was seen when she was given her opportunity to address the court. I sat up all night wondering what I was going to say. I didn't write anything out. And it bothers me to, you know, hear what I said that night in the, the lockup. I've never met a mean person in my whole life. And Mr. Sobel is right. The loss of a child is so hard to endure. It bothered me for everybody to get up there and listen to those impact statements. I know how it feels. And I'm very sorry. I can't take back that that day. I wish I could. But I can't. I handle my stress so differently than anybody else does. And I wish I could help myself. I really could. I asked for help several times. And I didn't get it. I wished I had. I wish I'd still be down in the Rutland Regional because this would have never happened. And I'm sorry. After a short recess, Vermont Superior Court Judge John Pack returned with a poignant closing statement of his own, followed by the verdict. 
we had victims from all walks of life. Some who had lived life with hardships being part of their daily existence, some who had more opportunity. And yet you were joined here today in a bond of sorrow and sadness of unspeakable dimension. As you all know, there are a number of factors I have to consider. There were four murders. They were well-planned, lying in wait, and they had been thought out for some time. They were just mowed down. It's, that's the only way to put it. So I have a great deal of compassion and understanding for Jody Herring, but I also have an obligation to assure that this community is safe, that people can start to heal, and that the enormity of the crimes are um, reflected in the sentence. Count one, which is the murder of Julie Pazzarano, the sentence will be 20 years to life to serve. Count two, the murder of Rhonda Herring, the sentence will be 20 years to life to serve. On count three, the murder of Regina Herring, the sentence will be 20 years to life to serve. Those will all run concurrently with each other. The murder of Lara Sobo, the sentence is life without parole. An outburst of cheers and claps comes from Lara Sobel's family after Jody Herring is handed down a life sentence without the possibility of parole. Lara Sobel's sister Lauren spoke with the media as she exited the courtroom. We as a family are very glad that, um, that she will never live a free day in her life. Less than one year from the date of the murders, Vermont Governor Peter Shumlin signed two new laws into action on June 2, 2016. These provisions would now align the same consequences for crimes against social workers as those committed towards police officers, first responders, and other government officials. This law would also make it easier for victims of stalking and threats to more easily obtain protection orders in the state of Vermont. The second bill included a $1 million fund put towards security measures and upgrades for the Department of Children and Family Services, in addition to other government buildings. Shumlin spoke at a conference the day the bills passed, commemorating the life and sacrifices Lara Sobel made throughout her devoted career in social work. We will forever honor one of our very best, Lara Sobel, whose love and compassion for every child, every family, every Vermonter she touched shall be forever etched in our memory. Jody Herring sought revenge and by all means carried out her plan. The judge recognized that while substance abuse, trauma, and anxiety have all undoubtedly played a role in these killings, Rage and premeditated vengeance were the forces behind Herring's motives. She was hell-bent on an eye-for-an-eye mentality, believing that if she couldn't have her children, then anyone else she felt had wronged her had to die. Herring audaciously looked at Lara's father in court during her closing statement and said, Mr. Sobel is right. Losing a child is so hard to endure. This one sentence speaks volumes in regards to Jody's line of thinking. 
She implies here that the loss of guardianship is even remotely similar to this man's loss, the permanent loss of Lara's life, which Jody took upon herself to extinguish. This woman blamed the state, her aunts, cousins, boyfriends, DCF, and Lara Sobel for her own failures. And while all of these things very well may have contributed to this tragedy in one way or another, never once do we see Jody Herring take a look in the mirror and accept any responsibility for her own actions. The sad truth is that most, if not all of the above listed, the people on her so-called hit list, at one point or another, all tried to help Jody. It's unfortunate she never saw it that way. These cycles of abuse, violence, crime, and poverty tragically continue in the Herring family today. Jody's older daughter, Desiree, has been in and out of the prison system, much like her mother, since all of this transpired. Desiree's child was also taken away by DCF. Just days after the murders, Jody's ex-boyfriend, Henry Premont, was in an hour-long standoff with police at a Shell gas station, holding on to a loaded weapon, telling officers to, quote, blast me. Mr. Premont refused repeated orders to drop his weapon, and after he had placed the weapon on a hood of a car, he refused to move away from the weapon. He made statements that officers on the scene reasonably understood to demonstrate his intent to be shot by police. It was later reported that Premont engaged in this criminal act because he missed Jody, and he believed this was the fastest route to seeing her in prison. There is no one simple answer on how these cruel cycles can be broken. Some people are born into families entrenched in cultures of drugs, addiction, and violence. And unfortunately, there is no easy solution in disrupting these patterns. It is important to note, however, that it can be done. Lara Sobel's ex-client, who we've previously referenced, is living proof of that. When people feel lost, they can certainly become desperate. But no matter how desperate or stressed one may become... Taking another human life will never equate to a win, regardless of how someone like Jody Herring tries to rationalize it. If one chooses to commit the premeditated act of murder not once but four times, well, not only will they never see their kids again, but they can expect to die in a prison cell, wondering what they might have done differently when this Armageddon, or battle between good and evil, all went wrong. <laughs> 